I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. Our guest this week is author and podcaster Maggie Smith. Maggie's second act in her professional life is as a novelist. She spent over 25 years running a business, but when it began to feel boring and she needed to use her creativity, she attended a writer's workshop where the instructor asked everyone to write down something they could never write about. Maggie wrote down mother-daughter relationships. This idea transformed itself into a novel about where mothers, daughters, and mentors intersect titled Truth and Other Lies. One of the thematic ideas of the book is how important heroes are. They inspire us and make us feel a sense of empowerment. But sometimes we move into hero worship, where we fail to see that our heroes sometimes have big, glaring, unbelievably unethical behaviors that we could see if we only opened our eyes. Of course, the blindness that keeps us from seeing the truth about our heroes is similar to the blindness that keeps us from seeing our mothers, or our parents in general, in a favorable light. The novel covers a lot of ground in a fast-paced story. I read it really quick. It's very propulsive. Many of our listeners who hear us in podcast form around the country probably don't realize that we are also a weekly radio show in Louisville, Kentucky on Forward Radio 106.5 FM, which is a nonprofit and listener-supported station. And Forward Radio is celebrating its five-year anniversary, Carrie, and we've been on there for three of those five years. As part of the celebration, the station is having a pledge drive from March 27th through April 9th, which will be followed on April 9th with a birthday party for the station from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Tim Faulkner Gallery here in Louisville. There will be food and drinks and live music and speakers. It sounds like it's going to be quite an event. If you like events. (laughs) But if you're like me and you hate socializing, uh, just bring a book because that's what all book lovers do. No donation is too small. If you would like to make a donation to help bring programming like ours to the airwaves, you can visit www.forwardradio.org and you'll see the little donate tab. So give what you're able. But first, I hear that you are uh, waiting for my Girl Scout cookie order. I am. I am waiting for that. (laughs) Not that I don't have too many Girl Scout cookies in my house. This is Nora's last year as a Girl Scout. She's a senior, and she has been a Girl Scout since she was in kindergarten, I think. That is a lot of cookie seasons. For a number of those years, I was the troop leader. So I was in charge of all the cookies. So fortunately, I am not the troop leader, but there's still a lot of cookies in our house and a We're- lot of cookies being picked up and being delivered. And I-, I will not be sad when this cookie season is over and I don't have to pick up, drop off, deal with money, remember who ordered what and where and why and how and all that stuff. I remember one time I was out of town and you put something on Facebook. This was several years ago. Like, hey, I've got a few boxes of Girl Scout cookies. If anybody wants some, I'll even deliver. And I remember having you deliver some Girl Scout cookies to my house for a surprise for my kids who were there by themselves. Do you remember that? 
Yeah, I do. And, you know, after so many years of doing that, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Let these little Girl Scouts and their parents have many, 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 many years of fun Girl Scout cookie sales. Well, I have to ask, what is your favorite flavor? Do you have a favorite flavor over Um, the years or one that was discontinued? I hate it when they discontinue. uh, You know, okay. So I like Samoas and I like Thin Mints and I like Tagalongs. I like all of those pretty much equally. So here's the thing though. Not everybody knows this. There are different bakers. So my niece who lives, like she goes to school in Frankfurt. She was in Girl Scouts for several years And they sold different Girl Scout cookies than what we sell here in Louisville. And so they had cookies that I really liked, but I would have to buy them from her and get them from Frankfurt because it's not like standard across, you think Girl Scout cookies all across the nation, but sometimes there's different ones. And so there might be one that you end up finding that you like, but your area doesn't sell it. You just blew everybody's minds who likes Girl Scout cookies, because that means that anywhere you go, you could possibly get a different flavor of Girl Scout cookie. Yes. Yes. So now you have to go all over the country and see what all the different Girl Scouts are selling. My favorite is Thin Mints by far. I could eat a whole box in a sitting of Thin Mints. And my second favorite would be tagalongs because they're kind of like a Reese cup. I, I like that the peanut butter is kind of toothsome. You like that word toothsome? That's a anyway. good word. <laughs> so those are my two favorites. Well, I'm happy for you. It's your last year. I'm sorry for me because I had my finger on the pulse of Girl Scout cookies and I could just <laughs> have you deliver at, at, my, at my beck and call and that's all done now. You know, well, I will say one of the sad things is there are people who, like, I have a former coworker. Like, I haven't worked with her since my daughter was born. So 18 years, I haven't worked with her. And, you know, we're Facebook friends, but we don't see each other very often. But the one time a year we do see each other is she orders Girl Scout cookies, and I drop them off to her. And so that is once a year when we sit there and talk for 40 minutes, and we get to see each other in person and kind of catch up. So that part, it's a little bit sad. Well, couldn't you find another kind of cookie she liked? Like, maybe she really loves Oreos. So one time a year, buy a package of Oreos and take it to her house. I could, but there's not that push. I don't have a troop leader pushing, sending emails and being like, sell these cookies. We need to get rid of cookies. So... Anyway, well, you uh, left me to my own devices last week because you were gallivanting. I was doing a little bit of gallivanting. Yeah, it was my daughter. She's in college and it was her spring break and she's a freshman. And of course, you know, she wanted to go with a group of friends to some beach and do what college students do. But none of her friends had any money to go. And so she was sort of like, hey, mom, do you want to go somewhere for spring break? And so we did. Now, in fairness, I was supposed to take her somewhere two years ago on spring break. This was when COVID first happened and we had to cancel our trip because we were leaving like two weeks after everything shut down. And so I made a call, I canceled the trip and I had flight credits. Those credits were getting ready to expire. So I thought this would be the perfect time to use them. So I took her and her best friend to New Orleans and we stayed at this cute little carriage house cottage that was behind like a row house and it had been converted and you could still see the you know the old beams and the exposed brick and everything um it was very cute but we we were just a couple blocks from the French Quarter 
Uh, they had never been to New Orleans before, so it was kind of fun to introduce them to that. We went on a ghost tour, which was the thing that my daughter really wanted to do. And that was very creepy and interesting. And we ate a lot of good food. So we had a good time. But I also spent a lot of time taking pictures of them because they are 19 (laughs) and they were always looking for a good photo op. But the pictures I took were never right. And they'd have to do it again. And they were doing all their modeling moves. You know, it was it was an experience. This 50-year-old mama doesn't understand all the selfies and the primping and, <laughs> and the modeling. Yeah, and the sleeping late. I think there were times where you were where you were missing an adult companion. That that probably would have been nice yes. for you. Yes. You need to take a grown-up buddy. Yes, I need to travel with grown-up buddies because I didn't have anybody to really drink a glass of wine with. And it's yeah. kind of sad to drink a glass of wine by yourself. Given the mother-daughter dynamics that you experienced in New Orleans, that's probably a perfect segue to get us into talking about Maggie's book, Truth and Other Lies. Are you ready to talk to her? Always ready. Maggie Smith, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. Maggie, I've read your book and I've not read anything like it recently about women and power and journalism and politics. It's filled with all kinds of good stuff in there. So how would you describe your novel, Truth and Other Lies, to someone who hasn't read it? Well, the short answer, the elevator pitch, as we say, would be a newbie investigative journalist must choose between her mentor, who's a world famous reporter, has won the Pulitzer Prize. And her mother, who's running for political office, when she uncovers a decade-old lie. So it's really, at its heart, a story about a 25-year-old looking for a role model. Is she going to model herself after her mother, who she disagrees with on pretty much every social issue there is out there? Or is she going to model herself after this world-famous journalist that she winds up working for, who seems to agree with her? about everything political, social, you know, environmental. And there is a plot that gets twistier as it goes on, I guess you'd say. As you say, there's several threads running through this. There's journalistic ethics or lack of of those. There's political beliefs, family dynamics, and the way that lies can corrode. So was there a particular thing that inspired one or all of these? What was the initial idea that you started out with? Well, initially it was just the three character roles, I guess I'd say, the mother, the mentor, and the daughter. I thought that that was an interesting triumvirate because it was kind of what I went through when I was 25 or so. Uh, The idea that I didn't want to model myself after my mother, and yet I wasn't sure who could be a role model for me. And and I thought that was an interesting dynamic going on in my own life, and that perhaps I could write a novel about that. So I really had these three characters and their roles and needed to find a plot to hang it on, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, What could I set as conflicts and tension and secrets that could encompass these three characters getting into interaction with each other. So I was really intrigued by Megan. She's the young journalist because, you know, she has this relationship with the veteran journalist, Jocelyn. And 
that relationship, I mean, from Megan's point of view, it's, it was felt a lot like hero worship. And, you know, we see this all the time, I think in modern society and, and probably, you know, historically people have, have done that too. But, you know, we see it with sports figures, with celebrities, and even, you know, recently with political figures, I'm thinking about um, Vladimir Zelensky, obviously, you know, strong leader, very brave, but people have made him out to be, you know, like he should be in the Marvel universe. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, and he's just a man. When I was reading your book, I cringe sometimes reading from Megan's viewpoint, even though I could understand her perspective, because that's, that's sort of normal, you know, for a 20 something young person, but there's the saying, you should never meet your heroes. So what (laughs) made you want to write, have that as part of the novel? Well, I think precisely what you say is that, you know, you, you find out when you get close to your heroes and many people don't, they just view what they read about them on social media and, you know, in, in the Zeit gig, what people are saying about them. But when you do get close to them, and oftentimes the, the media is part of exposing these kinds of things, you find that they're just human beings like everyone else. And they have things they've done that they'd rather not a light shone on them. And also Jocelyn is just, she's really that kind of person that she feels like the ends that she gets justify the means. And we see that in small ways and we see that in big ways through the book is that she has eventually through her career become larger than life to herself Mm -hmm. and kind of thinks, you know, uh, I do what I need to do to get the story out. And that's the more important thing. So that is not necessarily how Megan feels. And, and she's come up against that realization as the story goes on that her hero may not be as squeaky clean as she thinks mm-hmm. she is. Well, you know, when you said that about the ends justifies the means, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read Machiavelli, but it occurred to me, I'm like, maybe this would be a good book, like a modern book pairing with Machiavelli, because it seems like there's some connections there. Very much was channeling Miranda Priestley in Devil Wears Prada, and that's one of my comps when I was creating Jocelyn, because she is very, very good at her job. She's very competent and has risen through the ranks, but she's not necessarily the person you'd want for your best friend. Right. So as a journalist myself, I really kind of hate the vitriol that some segments of society lash out at journalists who I think for the most part are are just trying to share information. Mm-hmm. But Jocelyn's role in the story made me think about the ugly side of journalism of the business, you know, with its power plays. So what were you hoping readers might take away from her part of the novel? Well, that just because people agree with us on social issues doesn't mean they carry deep down inside the same values we do Mm -hmm. and vice versa, because the mother in the story is the opposite of Megan in many of the social issues. And yet when it comes down to it, a lot of their value systems between the two of them are very similar. So I guess it's just, you know, you have to kind of really get to know somebody before you can really tell where they stand and how much you have in common with them. And even if you don't have things in common with them, can you understand why they might feel that way? 
you know, and, and your book touches on social media because that's kind of the one of the issues or the, the big issue that affects Jocelyn is brought to light through social media. And yes. I think there's no room for nuance in social media. You know, right. it's I guess it's possible to get to it, but most people are not able to use it effectively in that way to come to a deeper understanding of of anybody. Somebody posts something, you know, in 280 characters, you can't get a whole lot of depth there. Yes. And I think you see that in Jocelyn's reaction. She's one, she's not of the generation that grew up with social media. And she feels like, you know, this is a reputation that I've built over 40, 50 years. And it's all wiped out in like two or three weeks by some anonymous Twitter troll, and she can't get a hold of it. She says, every time I open my computer, there's 2,000 more people have logged on and given him thumbs up. So she realizes the power that social media has come to have, but she doesn't feel like she has a handle on how to deal with it. I kind of felt for her in that point. I mean, I social media is kind of a scary thing. It, you know, it really can have a life of its own. That was That was an interesting part of the book. But we do see later that Jocelyn, once she gets her second win, she's able to kind of use another form of media, a talk show, to kind of turn that around. She learns quickly. So Megan's mom, Helen, is a character whom I didn't like at first because she seemed, we talked just about nuance, because she seemed unable to see nuance. She seemed like, you know, she was in this political party and she could only see things in sort of black or white there was no gray. But then I realized at the end of the book that I was only really viewing her through her daughter's eyes. So Megan, mm -hmm. you know, by her being the protagonist, she sort of polarized Helen for me. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about generational blindness. I think younger people sort of always assume their parents or older people don't know what the younger generation is dealing with, or they just can't relate. Well, I don't think of it so much as blindness. I think there really are differences in the way the generations view the world. Um, I think that's based on what was going on when they were growing up, the experiences they've had through their lives. I don't think that it's necessarily so that they don't realize how the other, I think they really do view it differently, mm -hmm. depending on, I mean, I come out of a psychology background a long time ago, and Maslow's theories of need, when, when you're concerned with getting your own first apartment and whether your car is going to break down, a lot of times you're not thinking of bigger picture things. Right. And when you're thinking of, I, I need a career, I need a job to support myself, you're at some really basic kind of needs when you're in your 20s and making pretty substantive decisions, but you don't realize they're substantive decisions at the time. And when you're older, you have a different perspective on it based on what you went through in your 20s, what the world was like then, and what you've experienced. And hopefully we're getting a little wiser as we get older. So I think all you can do is just try and one, when you are older, remember what it was like to be younger. And when you are younger, maybe give your older parents or mentors uh, the benefit of the doubt that they might maybe know what they're talking about sometimes mm -hmm. and they can help you figure out how to navigate the world. I struggle to read young adult fiction, mm -hmm. but I think it's precisely because I do remember 
that thanks. <laughs> you don't want to relive it. <laughs> don't want to relive it. I mean, I read those books and I'm like, I feel exactly the way I did when I was in my twenties and it was miserable. Some people like they love that. And I just, I have a hard time doing that because I remember all too easily what it was like. So kind of along these same lines, Megan, the protagonist in your book is a 20 something and you as a writer are a bit older than that, probably closer to the age of Helen or Jocelyn. So why did you decide to write the book from the point of view of the youngest character? Well, I think because one, she was the conduit for the other two characters. In fact, the other two characters never meet. The mom and Jocelyn never meet up in the novel, which I've only really just come to realize as I've been talking about it. But she has the most to learn. She has the journey to go on. And she's kind of the naive narrator. That's part of her charm and part of also why people say, oh, she makes me so mad. She's so naive. Why doesn't she catch on? But she doesn't have that much experience underneath her belt. And she's also, of course, as you mentioned, very much in the hero worship of, I I tell people, this is like you met Diane Sawyer Mm. and she became your mentor. It isn't like the reporter on the local newspaper. This person is uber famous. So any of us would probably be a little intimidated and also a little puffed up by the fact that you're kind of the special person that she she is uh, helping along here. And I think late in the novel, we see that Megan really has had a growth arc. She remarks to one of the other characters who asks her, you know, what was it about Jocelyn that, you know, and she said, well, she made me feel special. Mm -hmm. And I've been looking for that kind of validation from my mother all my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that resonated with me and my mother and my relationship, you know, nothing was ever good enough. Nothing I did was ever enough of an achievement. There was always something else I needed to do. And so I think that was part of what I was trying to get at with her character as well, is that she was the one that had to do the growing, not so much the other two characters. Did writing this from that younger person point of view give you any more perspective on your mother and maybe her positions on things? A little bit. I wish my mother was Helen. (laughs) Uh, Although she was the hardest character to write because of that, because initially I made her very much of a caricature and maybe she still is in the beginning. As you say, she's, she's filtered through my eyes, you know, my 25 year old eyes and come to see that there's a lot more to her than you at first know, because there's a lot more to her than Megan knows. And yeah, I guess, you know, in some ways uh, she isn't my mother and my mother is deceased now. So, you know, I get the last word, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that was just my, it wasn't my mother and me particularly. I have two siblings and they both also felt like she was a little cold and unloving. I think I understand from an intellectual point of view why she might've been like that. That doesn't mean it didn't hurt just as much. The book has a lot to do with secrets. Uh, Helen has a secret that that she has held on to and and kept close to her her whole life. And then Megan has a secret that is actually her friend's secret. But because Megan helps her out, it becomes Megan's secret that she doesn't want her mom to know about. And then Jocelyn has secrets. So what was it about these things that, that these women have participated in or have had happened to them or actively done that they want to keep 
close to the chest. What was it about this idea that felt interesting to you? Secrets are always interesting. Oh, that's true. They are. They are. <laughs> and and I actually did an Instagram series. If you go to my Instagram account, Maggie Smith Writes, you'll see that I did a series of posts over the last probably six months. I spread it out. And it was just pictures of different women in different stages of life. And it said, every woman has a secret she hides from the world. And I think that's really probably true, that we all have maybe not as big as secrets as are, are these three characters are hiding. I was interested in the idea of, is a secret always a lie? Mm. Uh, in the case of Helen, she did lie to one person, her husband, but the rest of the time she didn't really tell the secret. So it wasn't like she was blatantly lying. She just kept it as a secret. She was and withholding. Withholding she, a yeah. secret. Of course, Jocelyn thinks the secrets she's kept were perfectly justified because of the ends that she achieved. So there are a lot of different reasons that people keep secrets. Sometimes they keep them because in the case of uh, Becca, she's kind of somewhat keeping the secret so she doesn't hurt someone she loves. Mm -hmm. And is that a good reason or does the fact that you're then not being genuine with the person you love keep a barrier between the two of you. So I was just interested in how different characters might feel about that. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. Secrets, those are so much of the crux of the story, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the different stories of the women. So Well, and, and then, you know, you do leave yourself open, particularly if it's a secret that you don't want out there. And we have seen that with politicians and celebrities. Oftentimes, they're not choosing to disclose the secret. They are being exposed. Mm -hmm. So that is also makes you vulnerable to blackmail or to intimidation if someone knows your secret or finds out about your secret or goes looking for your secret and uncovers it. Well, this book is obviously about female dynamics, but I'm wondering, I know you have some a psychology background, but I'm wondering how you think this story would be different if the three main characters were male. Now, obviously, you know, it's each character is individual, but I just feel like there's a difference, though, between the way men and women interact. And so in terms of like this power triangle that's going on, do you think the gender matters? Oh, I absolutely do. And that's a great question. And now I'm thinking, hmm, what would it be like if if those were all men, you know, father, son, and, you know, Dan Rather or somebody? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm sure the power dynamics would be much different. I'm not a man, so I don't know. But... <laughs> It does seem that men grow up with power and jockeying for position being much more something that kind of is there from a very early age. And I think women, at least the women I know, tend to be more conciliatory and teamwork and working together. But maybe that's just a stereotype. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know I see it a little bit, the middle school level, you know, when kids are growing up, what I find is that girls are way more vicious than boys, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I wonder if it's changing, you know, I wonder yeah. if maybe as women are gaining more power in the workplace and gaining more power in the world, I wonder if that is something that could change in terms of how we view men and women and sort of the, the roles that they play in powerful situations. I don't right. know. And even just what if it was 
the same Jocelyn, the same Megan, but it was a father in the middle. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. Oh no, I have more books to write. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so this is your debut novel, but you have in fact had a very full life and career before you ever published anything. So tell our listeners a little about your life before this book. And did you always have your sights set on writing professionally? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> I think I made a wrong turn when I dropped out of journalism school. I could have been a journalist and then I could have written my first book much earlier. But yeah, I, I went to two years of journalism school and then dropped out and started down the psychology path where I got a PhD in psychology and then got married and moved from Oklahoma to Wisconsin and started an art business. So I am a serial job switcher entrepreneur, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I didn't really intend when we started the art business to do it the rest of my life. I think I thought, let's do this for a few years. It sounds fun. And I did it for, you know, 25 years or so. I really started writing just as a creative outlet. I think the business got to be where it was kind of running itself. And I wasn't being as challenged as I was in the beginning when I was growing it. And we were you know, at $4 million and we were selling artwork all over the country to business facilities like nursing homes and hospitals and things like that. And it was just kind of coasting along. And I had a staff of at one time, 16, 20 people. So they were doing all the work and I was just kind of the supervisor. It wasn't very challenging. So I kind of was looking around for a creative outlet and my husband discouraged me from making that singing. Uh, (laughs) And I had tried to paint sometime in college and I remember painting something and somebody said, what is it supposed to be? (laughs) And journalism is writing. It's not creative writing in that sense. So I I took a few classes and wound up going to a week-long retreat. And that was uh, really the start of this novel because the teacher said, fill in this blank. I could never write a book about. And I put mothers and daughters. Because of the contentious relationship I had with my mother, and I have not had biological children. So I've been a stepmom, but not a biological mom. And I thought, well, what business would I have writing about something like that? But then she said, let's write for 30 minutes about that thing you could never write a book about. And (laughs) I remember drawing three circles, and one was mother, one was daughter, and one was mentor. Hmm. And even though they had another story in a different version that was the seed or the kernel of this novel all these years later. So how long ago was that retreat? It was about four years. I know I wrote it one entire time, 300 and some pages, an entire novel that I shopped around that is nothing like this novel, except it has Jocelyn Jones. She was a famous feminist as opposed to a journalist. And it has a mother character and a a daughter character that had different names, and it was an adoption story. It had nothing to do with this plot. So it took four years to get to the six months that it took me to write this novel. Mm. But I, I think people lose sight of the fact that when you're a debut, you also don't know how to write a novel. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching yourself how to write. And my first you know, coach, I guess you'd say, when I sent her some pages and we just had a phone conversation, I remember her first remark was, I need to tell you what a scene is. 
And I thought, oh, that sounds like kindergarten. <laughs> I guess I'm really at the beginning here. You know, you don't know write dialogue. You don't know how long chapters are supposed to be. How many scenes are supposed to be in a chapter? How long is a book supposed to be? What's supposed to happen in the book? What about the secondary? I mean, there's just all kinds of things to learn. So you're doing that at the same time you're trying to produce a book. Hopefully the second and third one, you know, are easier. Hopefully you've learned some of the craft along the way and it's easier the next time around. I have heard several authors say that, you know, they've written one version of a book. That one didn't really make it. The only thing that's from the original is like maybe the main character's name or what have you. And then Mm -hmm. they rewrote it a different way. Right. When that happens, like I would think you would have in your head, like who that character is. And maybe it's hard to switch directions and write a totally different story with this character that you've already written one novel about. Right. Is that hard to like switch directions like that? It is a bit, yeah. One of the things I mentioned was they had different names. That's one of the things I did right away so that, you know, they were Anna and Lily and they became Helen and Megan. I did that on purpose so I would stop thinking of those original characters. Mm -hmm. And Lily in the old one, now Megan, uh, was probably of the three the least developed. So when I made her the, the only point of view, and I was writing it on all three points of view also. It was suggested to me by a developmental editor that maybe that was a lot to take on for a first novel and that I should pick one. When I picked Megan, I thought, well, that's interesting because in the first version, she was the least developed and now I've got to make her the most developed. So yes, it is hard. It is hard to give it up. And I think Jocelyn didn't change that much as a character, but the other two were very different. Mm -hmm. So How has the experience of birthing a book into the world been different from the success that you've had in in other career pursuits? Well, I think there's some similarities to it. Uh, The one I think of is, is starting the business because I started the business as an idea and I fleshed it out with my first husband and then it became a team that took over that we hired that, you know, then brought it to the next level. And Writing a book is a little bit like that. Initially, it's just you and you're in control and it's only you in the office. If you don't have a co-author, you set your own stage, you control everything. And then at some point when it is a finished book, you kind of let it go. And there's a whole team of people that from your book cover designer to your editor, to your publicist, and now, you know, readers that kind of take over. And now you don't have the control anymore. You're just kind of along for the ride. (laughs) But at the same time, I think there is more of a personal achievement feeling with a book. And I feel like it can be more of a legacy than a company that could go bankrupt, go out of business, whatever, or basically who remembers, oh, I bought that piece of art from this person. (laughs) But, you know, my book maybe will always be on the shelves of somebody reading it. So it's kind of more of a legacy, I think, Mm -hmm. than I was experiencing before. And also, I'm now part of this great group of writers, and writers are the best community out there. They are a great bunch of people to be friends with. So, Well, let's talk about that because you also host a writing podcast called Hear Us Roar for the Women's Fiction Writing Association, and you've done over 100 episodes, and you're a board member for the Chicago Writers Association and a managing editor for their online magazine. So tell us a little bit more about the podcast, Hear Us Roar, and what have you learned from hosting it? 
Well, the podcast is uh, under the auspices, as you mentioned, of the Women's Fiction Writers Association. When I started it, it'll be four years ago in May. We had 500 members. We now have 1,800 members. Oh, so wow. our association has grown like crazy in the time, which has resulted in lots more people releasing books and me having a very long waiting list of people that wanting to get on the podcast. I used to do it only twice a month until I looked at the list and said, if I keep this up, I've already got a year's worth booked right now. Mm. And most people, of course, want to be on when their book releases. That is not possible because of the line that I have. But usually it's nine months or so after their release, before they write their second book, hopefully, or before their second book is out, Uh, which is nice, actually, because it gives you the perspective of what worked and what didn't work in marketing. And they've got a little bit of time underneath their belt to reflect on that question. I had a tremendous education talking to all these people for my book, because not only did I learn very nitty gritty things like publishers I might want to approach or Goodreads giveaways or publicists to talk to, just all those kinds of facts and figures about how to release a book, But I also heard all these different stories about how people were so resilient in getting their book out. If one door closed, they just simply went to another door and found a way to, some of them indie published, some of them went with a different publisher, some of them lost their agent, and yet all of them wound up in one way or another getting their book published. And that happened to me too. My first publisher went bankrupt. Mm. And so it was a good lesson for me that, well, just like those other people I've been interviewing, I have to find a different way. And so I cried in my pillow for a couple of days and then said, okay, strap on your big girl pants and let's get going again. And the other thing is that everybody is so interesting. Writers are such interesting, not just that that they've written a book, but they themselves live such interesting lives. I've recently interviewed somebody that had an endorsement from Nora Jones on her Amazon page. And I thought, well, I'm going to ask her about that. And she said, yeah, I was a a roadie for Nora Jones as a lighting technician. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Tell me about that. And then I had another lady that for a while lived in Iraq and worked for an NGO. And She found out that the person that she considered her best friend, one was a spy for Saddam. And one of the people she was spying on was this woman I was talking to, her best friend. Oh, my gosh. gosh. Um, Yeah. So it was like, okay, that is really interesting. (laughs) Well, I totally agree that, that writers and book people in general are some of the best people. We have met so many interesting people during our podcast. So would you say that Hear Us Roar is more of a podcast talking to writers and for writers, like it's talking about the act of writing the publishing industry? Yes, it certainly could be for readers if they're interested in that particular writer. But Mm -hmm. it's really threefold. You know, I call it a win-win-win from my business background. Uh, It's a win for the author because they get the exposure to their book and maybe even a second exposure because the hoopla from the debut has died down and it's months afterwards. So maybe other people go, oh, I I forgot about that book. I'm going to go back and read that book. It's a win for the association because one of the things we want to do is have growth and let people know about the association, what we can offer. And it's also most probably importantly is the listeners are 
would-be writers for the most part right. who are hoping to write a book or thinking they'd like to write a book and they get a insight into what that journey might be like. So what's what's next for you? Are you continuing to write? And if so, what are you working on next? Well, I have been working during the time that this book was done on a psychological suspense, a little bit of change of genre. I think it's also kind of women's fiction. And the elevator pitch for that one is an ambitious district attorney hunts down the stalker, threatening her and her teenage daughter, only to be charged with murder when he winds up dead. Oh, wow. And that one I'm tentatively calling Blind Spot, because there are other twists involved that aren't in that mm-hmm. elevator pitch. But I've also kind of been challenged by some readers of this book as to whether I'm going to write a sequel to it. And the ending is such that you could kind of say, oh, well, you know, I'd like to know what happened. But I think it's kind of obvious what is going to happen. So if I do write a sequel, I think I will write it with the mother as the major character mm. and a character that appears quite late in the book named Dragon, Mm. and the two of them will work together on something. Hmm. I'll just leave it at that for the people that haven't read it yet. Yeah. Well, that sounds intriguing. Well, Maggie, this has been such a great chat with you. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Maggie Smith and with Carrie. Carrie, what's going on over there? I recently read, I listened to the audiobook. It is a Kate DiCamillo book that I believe our favorite bookseller, Sam, mentioned one of the times that we have had her on. I really enjoy Kate DiCamillo as an author. I've read, I think, most of her books. This is called The Beatrice Prophecy. And again, I listened to the audiobook and it was narrated by Finty Williams. And I just think Finty is an excellent name. So uh, I love that. But it is the story of a girl named Beatrice. And she is found at the start of this book. She's snuggled up with a goat named Answelica. She is discovered by a man called Brother Edict. He lives in a monastery and he finds Beatrice with this goat. And so they don't know where she came from. They don't know why she's there. The goat is very protective of Beatrice. And so the story starts there and then goes through where they realize that she's probably somebody pretty important because she can read. And so this is kind of in medieval setting. At that time, you know, girls definitely didn't know how to read. Most people didn't know how to read. So Brother Edict realizes that she must be pretty important and he needs to protect her because at this time, not only could most people not read, but it was against the law for girls to know how to read. So they shave her head and she is installed in the monastery. You know, the story continues. She meets a a boy named Jack (laughs) who has lost his family. And so Brother Edict and the boy and Beatrice and the goat and Swelica travel through. They're trying to get to the king and discover why Beatrice, where she came from, you know, what her role is. And they discover that the king is actually looking for her. And so she wants to know why. 
what's going on. You know, it's a little bit of a, I won't say a coming of age story because it it's not like we go through this huge period of time, but you, you find out Beatrice's background and why she's important. You know, Kate DiCamillo writes excellent books. It was short. I think it was like four hours. And who can turn down a book that has a really bad natured goat named Anne Swellica, who is also very protective. I mean, <laughs> I love a bossy, sassy goat. Oh, she is totally bossy, sassy. So anyway, <laughs> highly recommend the Beatrice <laughs> Prophecy. Yeah. So Maggie, what have you been reading? Well, I, I recently read, not so recently, I read it last fall because I got an advanced reader copy, but something that just came out the week before my book, the third book by Lisa Barr called Woman on Fire. And it is weirdly has a 24, 25 year old investigative reporter as the major character. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a much older woman that is working as eventually as the antagonist. Uh, And Lisa uh, is a friend of mine and lives in Chicago and I live in Milwaukee and my book is set in Chicago. So it was weirdly similar, but it's much larger than life than mine is. It's got Nazi looted art masterpieces. You learn a lot about art. Uh, You learn some historical things about World War II, although it's a current novel. And there are murders in it, so it's a little bit higher paced than mine. And Sharon Stone just bought the film rights to it. So she will be playing the older Margot, I think is her name, uh, character that is uh, behind a lot of the nefarious things that are going on. Ooh, I have seen this one all over Instagram. So you said it's the third book. Is it a third book in a series or is no, it her no, third it's, book? No, it's, it's just her third book. It's it, a standalone. All three of her books have been standalone. Okay. Well, that sounds intriguing. Very intriguing. Okay. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I read a book called Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson, and I became interested in this book after I heard Jennifer Calogeras talk about it on her podcast, Books Are My People. And this is a fairly new release. It came out in January, and I both listened to it on audio and in physical form. Uh, I was kind of doing it simultaneously. The book starts with two college acquaintances seeing each other in the airport after 20-something years. One is a photographer who is the narrator, and the other is a businessman named Jeff. Both happen to be on the same flight to Europe, and it's delayed by several hours. So the businessman, Jeff, invites the narrator into the swanky frequent flyer lounge for a drink. So over several hours, Jeff tells our narrator an eerie and almost unbelievable story of his life since they last saw each other in college all those years ago. But really, the narrator has no role in this story besides just telling us what Jeff says. So sort of being the vehicle for Jeff's story. And at first, this really bugged me because I I don't know, it was I found it a little jarring because you don't really see that in very many books written today. So I reached out to Jennifer as I was reading it and said, hey, what's your take on this? And she reminded me that this was sort of an old school device. And when I thought about it more, I started thinking about books that I had read that were in that form. And I'm thinking of things like The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, where someone's telling a ghost story in a parlor, and it's the story of the turn of the screw. And so once I thought about it that way, it became a bit more interesting. So during the layover, Jeff tells a story to our narrator that he says he's never told anyone else before. 
And when he was newly out of college and he was a little bit aimless, he lived on the California coast in LA, I think. And very early one morning, he can't sleep. And so he heads out to the ocean to walk and to clear his mind. And while he's there, he sees something in the waves and he isn't sure what it is at first. And then it occurs to him that it's a body, a human that's sort of bobbing in the waves. So he swims out to the person, he drags them back into the shore, and the man isn't breathing at all, and he's blue. And so he does mouth-to-mouth, and he does CPR, and he does CPR so vigorously that he ends up breaking the man's breastbone, which apparently, in the book, they said that like in order to bring somebody back with CPR, you have to do it that hard. If you don't break the breastbone, it's probably not going to work, which I thought was kind of an interesting fact. Anyway, so the, the man comes back to life and he begins to breathe again. And so someone else on the beach had called the paramedics. The paramedics come and they take the man to the hospital. And that is sort of the end of that, except for that it isn't because Jeff is left curious in the days after. Is the man okay? What's the man's name? Should he go check on him? And so a few days later, he goes to the lifeguarding station and he's able to get the man's name and he proceeds to try to track him down. And this is the start of a very strange story where Jeff begins to become borderline obsessed with the man that he saved. And little by little, he inserts himself into the other man's life without him knowing it. And while this seems to be borderline ethical, we also come to learn some things about the man he saved that are also less than wholesome. The book ends on sort of a twist, and I was left contemplating why Jeff was telling the story to the narrator and why he never told this story before. And the book introduces us to lots of ethical and psychological questions. And while I was reading it, I felt a little unsettled, and I definitely wanted to find out what was going to happen. This is a short book. It's a little under 200 pages, so it's definitely one you could read in a sitting or two, and it may be small, but it packs a punch. And I would recommend this if you like literary fiction with just a little bit of a thriller edge to it. And again, the name of that book is Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson. Hmm, that one sounds good. I will say I read that book too, and I would recommend it too. Maggie and I recommend it. (laughs) Exactly. These sound awesome. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Maggie's going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Maggie. Are you ready for your questions? I think so. All right. Question number one. When you were dating your husband, he wooed you in a unique and book-loving way. Tell us about how he won your heart with a specially filled box. Well, he knew that I was a big Agatha Christie fan. She is uh, somebody I read when I was a teenager, actually. I didn't know she was dead because, you know, I don't know. I was just clueless. So I I read all of the, what are there, 70 or something. And then somebody told me she was dead and it was like, oh no, I used them all up. <laughs> I would have read slower. But it, it has been the case that I let enough time go by, I forget who did it. So mm. I can read them again. And they are great for airplane trips. They just about take the airplane trip. So anyway, he went around to all the used bookstores around Milwaukee, all the way down to Kenosha, and bought up everything that he could find. And I think it's almost the full collection of Agatha Christie paperbacks. And many of them are the old vintage covers. So that was pretty cool. And he put them all in a box and and presented it 
And so I, I tell the fact that I didn't choose to marry him because of that, but it didn't hurt. Right. That's awesome. He's a keeper. That I mean, I thought maybe he bought them as a box set, but when you say he went to oh, all no. the little stores and he bought them, that is yeah. that's very romantic. Yeah. It took him six months, I think he said. Oh, wow. There was a book that came out last year that was a it was fiction, but it was based on an actual event in Agatha Christie's life where she disappeared for 11 days. Well, there is a re- real recent one that I would recommend. It's called The Christie Affair, I think. And it's by Nina D. Gourmont. It came out in February. And that is a fascinating book. Well, the story of the Agatha Christie disappearance is even more fascinating. And you should probably read about it on the internet before you read it, just to get the sense of it. But it gives an entirely different twist to what happened during that time. Hmm. Very fascinating. Basically, that disappearance happened right when Archie, Agatha's husband, told her he wanted a divorce, that he was in love with somebody else. And she then disappeared for like 11 days. And then apparently the whole of England started looking for her. It was front page news. Wow. And she registered at a kind of a wellness spa under the name of the mistress. <laughs> so this is told from the mistress's standpoint. Okay. So that is not the one I read. Oh, okay. Um, I knew that there was one that came out last year that was about the same thing, but it's not from the mistress's point of view. This one was very good too, but of course I can't, as I'm looking for it, I can't actually find the name of it. Is it the mystery of Mrs. Christie? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What, who wrote that? I would recognize Marie Benedict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I read. It it goes back and forth in time to when she was early in her marriage uh, with her husband. So it's like flashback back and forth between those 11 days and the relationship before. So I would recommend that one as well. But I'd never heard of that issue with Agatha Christie. And it's kind of like she had her own little Agatha Christie mystery in her own life. It's very cool. Okay, so question number two, you are a huge movie buff, including vintage movies. And so I'm wondering, what is a favorite old movie of yours that you think has aged well, and that younger audiences should definitely make time to see? I'm going to pick Chinatown. It's not that old, but I guess, you know, it's kind of old. It stars Faye Dunaway and Jack Nicholson. And it was written by Robert Town. I think he probably won the Academy Award for the screenplay. It's just a perfect, perfect movie. Every character in it is interesting. Even the very, very secondary characters, you wind up realizing that they had a very important part to play. And it has an interesting historical time. It's when Los Angeles was annexing the greater valley around it in order to get water to bring to Los Angeles so Los Angeles could grow. And so it's got scheming water mercenaries. It's got a love story. It's got a murder. Uh, It's just got everything. (laughs) Mm, But I really enjoy Jack Nicholson. And I have never seen that one. Oh, this is when he was in his prime. He was still very handsome. And uh, Faye Dunaway was very glamorous. It was right, probably right after Bonnie and Clyde. It was when she was really, her star was very ascendant at this point. And it also stars John Huston in one of his last roles. I think it's from the 70s. Is that probably so? Probably so. I think it's 70s. Yeah. So very good. That is kind of old. Depends on the crowd, right? (laughs) (laughs) That you're talking to. 1974 was Chinatown. That's when it came out. Okay. 
All right. Last question. You live in Wisconsin and have said that your husband occasionally asks if you want to move somewhere warmer, but you always decline. So why do you decline and what do you love about living in the heartland of the country? Well, I mainly decline because of my friends, my women friends here. They have become so important to me as I've gotten a little bit older that you know, I don't want to start over again making friends somewhere. I have these really good friends that I want to be with for the rest of my life. And also lately, since COVID hit, I've been home a whole lot more than I was before. And I look at all these things and think, I don't want to move all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I do love Wisconsin. I live in Milwaukee, which is the, the biggest city here. And we're only 90 minutes from Chicago, which is a really big city for culture and things like that. But it also has great getaways in the northern part. Uh, Northwoods of Wisconsin is a really great place to vacation. And we're on the lake. Oftentimes I'll talk to Chicago people and they say, oh, you're on a lake, right? And I say, yeah, it's the same lake. It's just... It just extends long past Chicago. So we're on Lake Michigan as, as well. So we have a lot of different beautiful things about Milwaukee. I think Carrie wants to pick your brain about I that do. northern Wisconsin thing. I do. Oh. So Door County is oh, yeah. on my want to see places. So is it is it's worth it? Oh, yes. It's kind of like Cape Cod. I mean, people oftentimes will compare it to that. The retreat I mentioned, that was where I was when I was taking that retreat. It's a little commercialized now, but there are still lots of bed and breakfasts and Airbnbs and things like that that you can rent up there. And fall is a beautiful time in Wisconsin. Spring is not real great in Wisconsin. We don't get much of a spring. Mm -hmm. And lately, winter hasn't been that bad, but don't come in the winter. (laughs) So I would come in the early fall or late summer everything is open in the fall there. And it, that would be the nicest time to go to Door County. Both sides of it actually are water. One is the bay and then one is the lake. And then it's not an island. It is connected to the rest of Wisconsin. So you can drive there. There is one island. It's called Washington Island at the very tippy, tippy top of Door County. And there you take a ferry across to Washington Island. So Unless you take your car, there are no cars there. There are people that live there year round, but it's it's much more of a go over there for a day trip kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I follow, I, I think it's hashtag Door County on Instagram, and I'm uh-huh. constantly seeing these fields of lavender and pictures of the water. And I'm going to make it up there one of these days. Well, search on the clearing. It was a person that was friends with Frank Lloyd Wright, and he bought a whole track of land and turned it into kind of a folk art school. So they do have writing classes and they have poetry classes, but it's much more throwing pots and carving wood and things like that. Uh, You stay the whole week in cabins and they feed you like crazy. You gain lots of weight. That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Maggie, thanks again for joining us on the Perks of Being a Book Lover. We have really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very much for having me on. You can find Maggie Smith on Instagram at Maggie Smith Writes and at her author website, MaggieSmithWriter.com. Her podcast, Hear Us Roar, for the Women's Fiction Writing Association can be found on your favorite podcast player of choice. 
Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or we'd be thrilled if you left us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.